Welcome everyone to evening worship. It's good to be back up here and worshiping with you on Sunday evening. Um, before we get started, I'll just mention that if you weren't here this morning and you'd like to know what's going on with our church, you can look at the back of your bulletin because there are quite a few things going on. And if you see something about a committee meeting, those are open uh, to anyone who might be interested in t attending and participating in those meetings. Um, I will note that we are cleaning out the youth room this evening, so if you'd like to, for some reason, help us with that, there will be pizza and uh, music, maybe. So we'll be doing that after this service, as soon as I can change my clothes. Um, that is all I'll highlight this evening. Our call to worship is Psalm 113, and I'll read that for us now. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Bless the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. So we'll take up that command to praise God. If you would stand, we'll sing hymn number 642, which is Be Thou My Vision. Let's sing hymn 642.
You may be seated. As you get seated, we'll take up our evening offering, and you can turn to our next hymn, which is hymn 197. And as we, uh, you might not be familiar with this hymn, so we'll listen to the uh, introductory music chorus. I'm not a music person, whatever it's called, to listen to the song before we sing it. We'll do that, and then we'll join in after the first go-round. So let's sing him 197 as we take up our evening off. We're now at our time of prayer together, and this is a time for anyone who is comfortable speaking out loud in a group such as this to pray, and we would love to hear you pray as we join our faith to yours and seek God's um, counsel, his will. So we'll take some time to pray, and I've asked Elder Roger to begin us. After Roger begins, there will be a time for you to pray if you would like to, and then I'll close us after a short time of silence.
Let's go before our God in heaven and bring our sorrows to him, bring our needs, bring our desires, our wants, whatever it might be. Let's go to our Father and pray. God, as we sang just now in in the last hymn, uh, we pray for comfort. Lord, I pray that you would comfort your people. Uh, There are so many just in our church who are suffering, uh, and we we don't even know about it, uh, whether it's things going on um, with our mental health, whether it's spiritual troubles, uh, whether it's flood damage that we're trying to get fixed in our homes, uh, whether it's family relationships that are strained. Lord, we need your comfort, first of all, to know that you care, to know that you are with us. So, Lord, we pray, comfort your people. God, as we close our day in worship, would you be magnified? Would you be lifted up? high above all our desires and our thoughts and things that we have planned for this week, would you be lifted up so that we would look to you as we work, as we uh, go to school, as we play on our sports and practices? God, would our eyes be lifted to you to see how we might glorify you in all that we do? So lead us now, I pray, uh, as we open your word, and would you speak boldly to us through your word, preached. We thank you for this time to worship you and to pray. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. And as you turn there, I'll introduce again the gospel of Mark. Um, It's been, I want to say, almost two solid months. And we've had a baby Uh, we've been on vacation. It feels like it's been years since I've been up here on a Sunday evening preaching on Mark. Uh, Pastor Heath getting here, it's been, uh, it's been appreciated also for me to get some rest in that way. And so we really covered the first half of Mark before Pastor Heath uh, began preaching. And actually, funny timing, uh, we 
stopped right before the transfiguration, um, which is what we're covering in small part tonight, which I thought was kind of cool. Um, I don't know if he th- knew we were preaching through this or not. I don't think he did, but uh, it was good timing. And so now we won't be spending a lot of time on the transfiguration, but uh, I would encourage you to go and listen to Pastor Heath's sermons on it, and we'll spend most of our time on the second half of this passage. And so the first, the first half of the Gospel of Mark is Jesus crafting his identity as the Messiah, making sure people begin to understand that his word is authoritative, that he has power over the spiritual realm, that he has been called by God to be the Messiah and Savior. And he is, has gone about kind of on these treks around the land, teaching and healing and performing miracles. But now the second half of Mark is all about Jesus heading to Jerusalem. It's now a journey story of how Jesus is going to be teaching and performing miracles all in the same direction to Jerusalem, to the cross. And it's fascinating that, and I've said this before, but the the time frame of Mark begins to constrict and become not just about weeks and months of Jesus' ministry, but it now becomes less and less. We get slower and slower until we get to the cross, and we're talking minute by minute almost, where we see the account of Jesus' crucifixion and then his resurrection. So I think it's fascinating how the gospel writer does this, that these gospels, these books of the Bible are not just thrown together, but they are crafted expertly, and we can praise God for that because it's a joy to read. So let me read our passage for this evening. Mark chapter 9, starting at verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first. To restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, 
I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can... All things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, So that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. That is a long passage. I understand it's it's hard to follow along closely with all the details, but we'll spend a lot of our time on this father, this desperate father who is in need of help for his son. I titled this sermon, Experiencing Closeness with God, because we see two different accounts of being close with God. We see the the disciples on the mountain in the transfiguration seeing the glorified Christ in all his splendor. And then we see this closeness with God between the Father and Jesus, this Father who is in desperate need and becomes close, as close as you can get to Jesus and experiences his compassion and his help. There are numerous denominations, numerous people who want to experience closeness with God. We want to feel close with God. Many denominations are actually formed around this desire to actually experience something in the worship service, to experience the movement of the Spirit in whatever way that that might transpire. Unbelievers, agnostics, spiritualists, believers all seek out experiences of God, whether it's going on a hike, whether it's trying out different drugs, whether it's exploring art. Um, There are numerous ways in which people try to seek out God and to experience his presence. And what's sadly ironic that I have witnessed from afar is that as these people seek out closeness with God, as soon as they begin to experience suffering, they abandon God.
And since we learn over and over again throughout Scripture, and as Pastor Heath preached this morning, that suffering is the very means in which God draws us to himself. He draws people to himself through suffering, not he doesn't push people away with suffering. In suffering, God reveals his glory. So we'll see in this passage that God uses suffering to draw people close to himself and that there is no path, no road to glory with God, to experience closeness with God without suffering. Jesus shows us the way. And this is good news. As that quote from this morning from John Calvin, I can't remember, but something about how God measures out every ounce of our suffering so that we aren't given any more than what he has deemed exactly what we need to accomplish his purposes to cause us to be sanctified. God is using our worst moments, our hardest seasons, to bring us into deeper joy, to bring us into closer relationship with himself. And it's a hard truth, but it is a good truth. Jesus teaches his disciples through this account on the through this experience on the mountaintop, that as they see the glorified Christ, he then says, don't talk about this. This is not the image of the Messiah that I want you talking about because the Messiah must suffer. There is no path to glory without suffering. And that's what Jesus is trying to teach the disciples and they do not understand. They just don't get it. I want to look at how there is closeness with God on the mountaintop, and then I want to look at briefly, as we close, closeness with God in the valley. So Peter, James, and John get a front row to the risen Jesus, the appearance of his glory as he will look when he rises from the dead and exists eternally in that form. This is the Messiah that they've been waiting for. This is the king, the glorious king who comes in power, who will come to, come to Jerusalem and kick out all the Romans and Gentiles and make this great kingdom. And it's no surprise that they're terrified. They don't know what to do. And I find it almost funny that they call Jesus rabbi as if any kind of rabbi could appear in such glory as Jesus does here. They say, let us build three tents for each of the people that have appeared to them. They're still so far off from understanding who Jesus is that in some ways it seems like God steps in and clarifies everything for them. He sets them straight. In verse 7, you can see, it says, A cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Jesus is the beloved, eternal Son of God. Listen to him. And listening is not the disciples' strong suit. They hear one thing and think it means something completely different over and over again. And I would say that is 
very much like me, and it might be a lot like you. We hear God's word, and the problem isn't in the reading it and the hearing it spoken and singing it. The problem is actually receiving it and doing it and living it out in our life and trusting God's word. The disciples have this true mountaintop experience that many are seeking. Many of us might have stories of going to camp where we just have this wonderful worship experience, and then we leave camp and we're just on fire for the Lord. I've had that. Um, I'm sure some of you have. The disciples have an experience like that. And again, it's not that experience that they have that Jesus wants them to talk about. He wants them to be silent. And in verse 9, we read this, and you can follow along with me. It says, As they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. One commentator, whom I forgot to write his name down, he said this, and I thought it was just a, a great sort of explanation of why Jesus would do this. He says, In the afterglow of the transfiguration, lest the disciples succumb to the glory and emotional adrenaline of the mountain rather than the necessity of the way to Jerusalem and the cross, he tells them to be silent. The disciples must understand that the way to glory is through Jerusalem It is through the cross, it is through suffering that glory comes about. And Jesus is not just leading himself through that. He is saying, all my disciples, all my followers must go this way on this path. Before glory, there must be suffering. I find it fascinating how when Jesus appears in glory on the mountaintop, his disciples are terrified. Peter, James, and John are terrified. And the whole point of Jesus' coming to earth is so that we would be in the presence of God, that we would be close to God and not terrified, that we would be comforted, that we would be happy and joyful being that close to God. So Jesus comes to suffer and die for us, and then he invites us to suffer like he suffers. And he joins us as he walks with us in that. The story turns from closeness with God on the mountain to closeness with God in the valley. So we'll go to that point now. Closeness with God in the valley. Read with me for a little bit. We'll start at verse 19. Jesus answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. 
Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. I will just say that is, verse 24 is one of my favorite verses. It's probably one of my most used verses for my own life. In every different kind of circumstance and in suffering, it's almost like clinging to God, not knowing what is going to happen, knowing most of all, that my faith is weak, but that God is strong. He is compassionate. Uh, I could talk a lot about that verse. But we see several different things as well. And I want to tell you all a story that I read. We see in this part of the story that Jesus is teaching his disciples and his followers that they must suffer because he must suffer. He is going to suffer for them. Um, he's showing them that closeness with God in suffering, I read this and I see this, closeness with God in suffering is as clear as being on the mountaintop in the transfiguration. Jesus is just as close. His glory is shining just as bright in suffering as it is on this mountaintop experience. So I read this story, a, a true story, uh, of a married couple named Mark and Martha. And Mark was diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease. They'd been married for 25 years and had four kids. He lost almost all physical abilities after, shortly after this diagnosis, including his speech. And even in writing out this account, he was writing it with a computer with his eyes, uh, using that technology. And Mark said he cried out to God when he learned of this diagnosis. He said, you've pulled me out of the game when I still have something to offer. And his response is incredible. He says, God's response to me was, you've been on the sidelines for a long time. You are just now going in the game. That is incredible to me. You are just now going in the game. They recount how the body of Christ, the church, came into their lives to help them in tons of different ways, bringing them meals, uh, having birthday parties for their kids, just helping in so many incredible ways, just coming in and sitting and talking with them and listening to them. And reflecting on this experience, Mark said, it's a daily exercise of faith that God is doing much that I can't see, and that in his economy, this suffering is worthwhile. And he remembered another man who told him that the sweetness of his life with God in the middle of his greatest suffering, the sweetness of his life with God, wasn't worth trading for a longer life. He did not want to give up this time of closeness with God in his suffering because God had been so sweet to him. So rather than reveal his glory to Mark in a miraculous healing, he revealed his glory to Mark in his suffering and drew near to him through the church, through prayer, through his word. 
And much like Mark and Martha were desperate for healing, the father in our story is desperate. So desperate that he cries out to Jesus in faith. And in the midst of this, Jesus remarks about the crowd's general unbelief. And I find it also encouraging that as Jesus points out and he says, this generation, how long will it be that you do not trust me, that you do not believe? And yet, Jesus doesn't stop there. He actually continues and shows compassion. The unbelief doesn't stop the compassion of Jesus. He gives it before they believe. And the Father admits he has weak faith. Now, he believes, but he still has unbelief. And I don't know how many times I've heard this taught to me uh, when I was younger, but I still hold on to it as one of the foundational bedrock truths of Christianity, that it's not the strength of this father's faith, and it's not the strength of your faith that matters. It is the object of your faith. It is the object, and the object, of course, is Jesus. It's who the Father has faith in. It's who you and I have faith in. It's not how strong our faith is that brings us close to Jesus and to God. He asks Jesus, if you can, have compassion on my boy and help him. There's so much complexity, so much that's uh, so real about this experience that to me it speaks to its truth that this father is so desperate that he has such weak faith, but it doesn't matter because he knows that Jesus is powerful enough, that he is compassionate far more than he can understand And Jesus has that wonderful response. If you can, of course Jesus can. It's Jesus, and I I just love that we see an account. To me, I read the Gospels and I think, man, if I were Jesus, I would be just, it would be impossible not to just show everyone that I can be powerful and gracious and I can heal anything, and yet all these people were unbelieving. And here we see Jesus say it, that, of course, God is not only able, but he is willing to be compassionate and to help. This is a a picture of true faith. Faith that is not worried about its strength, but that it knows who it relies on. This Faith that relies on Jesus and knows that Jesus is able when we are unable. And so our prayers, for instance, aren't answered by the strength of our faith. They are answered according to the will of our Savior, Jesus. So when you come to God in prayer, whether it's by yourself, whether you're driving, you don't have to beat yourself up and think, oh, I don't know if I should pray right now or if God hears me. He hears you. 
He loves you and he has more compassion for you and wants to help you more than you will ever know in this life. That is a wonderful truth. It is the object of our faith that is everything. It is Jesus. So the Father is in this desperate place. And I think it shows us that the most powerful place that we can be or the closest we can be with God is when we are in complete reliance and dependence on God. That is when we are closest with God. We must be able to say like this father does, I can't do this. I can't do anything. My faith is weak. I have unbelief in my life. And yet I believe enough to know that Jesus is able, that he loves me and has compassion, and that I need God. I would venture to say that many people aren't close with God because they feel like their hardships, their difficulties, their suffering are ways in which God is punishing them rather than drawing them to himself closer, or rather than asking God what he's doing in their suffering, they shut the suffering out, they push it down, they cover it up, they say there's no point for their suffering, that it's an annoyance, that it just, they just need to be tough. As, again, as Pastor Heath was saying this morning, we close ourselves off to the suffering. We don't want other people to see the difficulties that we're going through, whether they're mundane or whether they're on the side of the spectrum of cancer or another debilitating diagnosis, whatever it might be. We close off our suffering to God rather than letting God be close to us, rather than letting God draw us to himself in the middle of our pain. If you don't let God lead you in your suffering, you will never experience closeness with God. This is in the minor things, and this is in the big things. This is in our struggles at work. This is in your struggles at home. This is in your struggles at school. However small or large, God wants to be near you in all of these things. He wants to draw you closer to himself, and he will use your suffering and your hardship to do that. And so I would encourage you that as you consider your life, as you think about what God is doing in your life, or if you just see the pain and the suffering in your life, you can ask God, what are you doing in the midst of this with me right now? Why is this happening? And how are you working? How is God working in the middle of this suffering? And as you do that, I would encourage you to open your heart to the body, Christ's body, the church. This is the place These are the people, whether you like them or not, these are the people God has given you to share your burdens, to share your suffering. And in that, 
God will draw near and be close and show his compassion to you. I'll finish with this end of this story with Martha and Mark. Martha, the wife, recounts how she and her daughters left one day to pick a place out to bury their father one day. And Mark knew that they were doing this and they had planned this all out. And Martha did not think she could live through this day emotionally, that this would be so difficult that she couldn't even get through it alive. And what she experienced, she said, was tenderness and even laughter between her and her daughters as they went about this day. She said, I sensed God saying to me, I'm here. In all those places you don't think you will be able to face, I will be there. She goes on to say, God has had so much to give me, I see how intense sorrow and intense sweetness are mingled together. The depth and richness of life has come in suffering. Oh, how much I have learned and how much sweeter Jesus is to me now. To be close with God, especially in in suffering, is to be in total dependence and reliance upon him. And there is sweetness there. And if you don't believe me, you can believe those around you who follow Jesus and are suffering. You can believe this story of great suffering. We're often not closest with God when he answers our prayer for a nice home or um, a good grade on a test. It is a great blessing, but we often experience that we are closest with God when we open our pain, when we look for God in the midst of our difficulties, of our hardships. In 1 Peter, which I think um, the circle groups are going to be going through, which is great. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, we read this. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Isn't that interesting? When his glory is revealed, that's what's happening at the mountaintop in the transfiguration. When his glory is revealed, they're terrified. And Peter is saying, I want you to rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So share your sufferings. Share Christ's sufferings. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. And then he goes on to say, Entrust your souls to your faithful creator while doing good as you suffer. Entrust your souls to your faithful creator while doing good as you suffer so that you'll be glad and not afraid when his glory is revealed. I'd like to read just a couple short psalms and then we're, we're done. Well, I'll just read one. Psalm 23. We've heard it a million times, but I want to read it again. This is the closeness with God in the valley. 
It says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. An amazing psalm about how God is with us in the valley, how he is close to us, not far. He is leading us, his rod and his staff. He is leading us beside still waters, restoring our soul. So we see that the bridge between our fragile faith and our fragile lives and the pain that we endure to the all-sufficient, all-knowing, all-loving God is simply faith. As weak as it can be, as small as a mustard seed, the strength of your faith is not what matters. It is who you have faith and trust in. Faith is a gift from God. It is a wonderful gift. And so in experiencing this closeness with God, one day I hope and assume and plan on speaking with Jesus about my life, about the things that he was doing in the midst of my great suffering and difficulties, your great suffering and difficulties, and it's going to be a wonderful time. So don't close yourself off to God in your suffering. Let God in. Tell others in the church what you're going through. Ask them to help you see how God might be walking with you in the middle of it. And be amazed at how God will draw near to you and be close to you. His compassion, his sweetness, his grace. He is able to do all things. And he is able to be with you in all those places you don't think you'll be able to face. He will be with you. Because he went there first. Jesus experienced this horrible pain and loss and sadness and separation from the Father so that you and I would never experience that pain and suffering. He went there for you. So draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Let's pray. God, we believe. Help our unbelief. Um, Lord, if there, are any, if there is anyone here that does not believe, would you draw them to you? even with the faith of a mustard seed, would you give that to them? Would you show all of us your great compassion as we cling to you, as we are desperate for your help and for your love and for your compassion in our lives? Lord, lead the way and encourage our hearts through your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to stand for our last hymn, which is hymn 252, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Let's sing hymn 252.
receive God's blessing from 1 Corinthians 16, and I love the way that Paul starts. He says, O Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Amen.